Now may we have our next team of challengers, please. November, 1957. What you're hearing is a clip from the old CBS television show, To Tell the Truth. What is your name, please? My name is Charles B. Darrow. What is your name, please? My name is Charles B. Darrow. What is your name, please? My name is Charles B. Darrow. If you're unfamiliar with the program, one of the three men you just heard is the real Charles Darrow. The other two are just pretending to be. The contestants get the opportunity to ask each of these men questions in an effort to figure out which man is telling the truth. Whoever guesses correctly wins. Now, you may be asking, who is Charles Darrow? I, Charles B. Darrow, used to be a heating sales engineer. During the Depression in the 1930s, I was out of a job. Having nothing else to do, I invented a game. To date, that game has sold over 15 million copies in more than 50 countries throughout the world. For decades, the tale of Charles Darrow epitomized the American dream. It was a quintessential rags-to-riches story, built on a spark of ingenuity and old-fashioned entrepreneurship. In the early 1930s, at the height of the Great Depression, Darrow was an unemployed heater salesman living near Philadelphia. With no job and no prospects on the horizon, an idea pops into his head for a new board game where players compete to buy, sell, and trade property in an effort to accumulate the most wealth. Darrow happens to have a friend who is a printer, and he works with him to print 5,000 game boards. He manages to get them into a Philadelphia department store ahead of the Christmas season and they turn into an overnight sensation. By the following year, Darrow's game is selling so well that he can't keep up with the consumer demand. So he approaches the toy and game manufacturer Parker Brothers in hopes that they would be interested in acquiring it. Parker Brothers doesn't immediately believe in the game, but Darrow's sales are indisputable. So they negotiate the rights from him to distribute it. They ramp up production to 20,000 game boards a year, and it becomes the best-selling game in the country by the end of 1935. Charles Darrow, less than two years removed from hitting rock bottom, was on his way to becoming the first millionaire game designer in U.S. history. He invented what would become one of the world's most popular board games. He invented Monopoly. Isn't Monopoly game night the best? The love, the laughter, the competition. Because nothing brings the family together like a little friendly building. Buying. And owning it all. Today, Monopoly is among the best-selling board games ever made. It's now produced by Hasbro, the multinational toy company that acquired Parker Brothers in 1991. As of 2015, Hasbro estimated that Monopoly had been played by more than 1 billion people. It's been sold in 114 countries and translated into 47 languages. The game's origin story was tucked into every Monopoly set for decades. 
often featured atop the instruction manual. Well into the 1990s, Charles Darrow was referred to as the brainchild of the game in profiles for Time Magazine and the New York Times. Monopoly is, perhaps, the most iconic American board game. And Darrow made millions of dollars from royalties over the course of his life from it. But the problem was, the story wasn't true. Think back to your experiences of playing Monopoly. Do you have a lot of fond memories? I bet one of the first things you'd tell me are the feelings of frustration you remember for how long the game took. Or perhaps some resentment you still harbor from run-ins with over-competitive family members. What if I told you that those feelings weren't just peripheral side effects of a game that teaches us about unbridled capitalism and real estate investment? What if you have never understood how the game of Monopoly was intended to be played? That those feelings of frustration or resentment are actually critical to understanding what we have all missed about this game for nearly a century. The real story of how Monopoly was invented and how it made its way into Charles Darrow's hands in the 1930s is a fascinating one. It teaches us a surprising lesson about communication, about how we often misinterpret our environment and each other. It's a story about the hidden influences and associations that guide our thoughts, perceptions, and behaviors. This is the largely unknown story of Monopoly and what its lessons have in common with one of the most misunderstood songs in American rock music history. The origin story of Monopoly may have never been discovered if it weren't for, of all things, a lawsuit. In the early 1970s, Ralph Anspach was an economics professor at San Francisco State University. Oh, and, and he was being sued by Parker Brothers. You see, Anspach had become annoyed that the mainstream Monopoly game was giving an impression to kids, and to everyone that played it, that monopolies are somehow desirable. His intent was to create a game that demonstrated the values of the free enterprise system, one that showed how harmful monopolies can be to American businesses and to consumers. He called the game anti-monopoly. In 1974, Parker Brothers gets wind of his game and, perhaps unsurprisingly, cries trademark infringement. But the lawsuit had an unintended consequence. It gave Anspach an opportunity to dig into the history of the Parker Brothers game and their original patents. And that's when he made a discovery. Monopoly wasn't created by Charles Darrow. And Parker Brothers, who had marketed that story for years, already knew that. In her 2015 book, The Monopolists, Author and journalist Mary Pillen revealed that the genesis of Monopoly can in fact be traced back nearly 30 years before Darrow got his board game into a Philadelphia department store. 
1903 to a woman named Elizabeth McGee. For someone who history wouldn't remember up until very recently, Elizabeth McGee's eclectic career at the turn of the century was nothing short of impressive. She was a progressive activist and a feminist. McGee was among the less than 1% of women that owned patents at that time. She worked as a stenographer and a secretary, she wrote poetry, she did stand-up comedy. She even taught politics to classes in her evenings after work. McGee's progressive political views were influenced in part by a book she read in her youth called Progress and Poverty, written by Henry George, a politician and economist in the mid to late 1800s. George believed that the rising economic inequality of his era was due primarily to land ownership. He felt that individuals should be entitled to own 100% of the value they produce, but that no one should be able to own land, that its resources should be shared equally. In an effort to reform the economy, George had proposed a single tax called a land value tax, which would shift the bulk of taxation onto wealthy landowners. George's argument was that because the land is fixed and its value is created by communities or businesses, that the land itself is the most logical source for taxation, for public revenue. Variants of this idea actually exist today in countries including Denmark, Singapore, and parts of Australia. And it resonated with a lot of people in the US in the late 1800s. Remember, this was the age of Rockefeller and Carnegie, of monopolists that accrued unfathomable wealth before America's antitrust laws were created. So it's the early 1900s, and McGee is looking for a way to teach the country about Henry George's views. She's trying to educate people about the value of this progressive land tax and about the economic consequences of competitive property ownership. She's getting discouraged that her one voice can only take her so far. And that's when she decides it's inefficient to teach people through classes or public speeches, and they may not listen anyway. No, the best way to teach is through example, through an interactive experience. So Elizabeth McGee decides she's going to make a board game. McGee creates a board game unlike any other at that time. While most board games in her day followed start-to-finish linear paths, think Candyland format, she makes hers a square that players would loop around again and again. It featured deeds and properties to buy and sell. Players would exchange play money with each other and with a bank. They would pay taxes. On the corners, there was a poorhouse and a public park, a Mother Earth square where players would receive money each time they passed it, and jail. Nine rectangular spaces were drawn between the corners on each side. She called it the Landlord's Game. McGee was granted a patent for her game in 1903. But here's what is critically important to know about Elizabeth McGee's board game. It had two different sets of rules. Remember, this was meant to be a teaching tool to educate game players on Henry George's political views about the dark side of land ownership and wealth accumulation. So, each game featured what she called anti-monopoly and monopoly rules. 
In the anti-monopoly set of rules, players would benefit from one another's successes. They would all be rewarded when wealth was created on the board. In the monopoly set of rules, players would, well, do what you're familiar with today. They'd create monopolies with the goal of crushing all other opponents. McGee's goal, to put it bluntly, was to show people that monopolies really suck. After all, only one player would be happy at the end of the Monopoly version. No one else would have had much fun. And she felt this was a clever way to teach people those consequences. Here, this is what she said in the Single Tax Review, a progressive magazine in 1902. Quote, It is a practical demonstration of the present system of land grabbing with all its usual outcomes and consequences. It contains all the elements of success and failure in the real world, and the object is the same as the human race in general seems to have, the accumulation of wealth." End quote. So, what happens to Elizabeth McGee's game? It goes viral. Well, sort of. The early 1900s version of viral. It gets into the hands of East Coast academics. It's played on university campuses like Harvard and Columbia. But hey, these are college kids. They aren't actually buying McGee's game from a store. They're bootlegging it. They're drawing and passing along their own versions. And this is critical, because along the way, the game starts changing as it spreads and gets redrawn. It spreads down the coastline to a community of Quakers in Atlantic City who rename the board spaces to local streets and properties, like St. James Place, Pennsylvania Avenue, and the Boardwalk. Somewhere along this journey, McGee's anti-monopoly rules drop off. People are only playing the Monopoly version, so much so that they aren't calling it the Landlord's Game anymore. They're calling it the Monopoly Game, that's the game that during a leisurely game night amongst friends, an unemployed Charles Darrow comes into contact with in the early 1930s. He's blown away by it, and at the end of the evening, he asks the host for a copy of the rules. And, well, he gets to work. When Darrow took his bootlegged version, Maggie's board rebranded with Atlantic City street names, to Parker Brothers, he didn't even have a patent. But Parker Brothers took him at his word that he invented it, and they negotiated a royalty deal before the patent was granted. Then Parker Brothers, in the midst of helping Darrow file his patent, run into the Landlord's Game by Elizabeth McGee, and they realize, well, they have a problem. So they approach McGee and offer her $500 to acquire the rights to her game. In hindsight, this would be one of Elizabeth McGee's biggest regrets. She didn't know about Darrow's Monopoly game, and she thought Parker Brothers was intending to publish her original game. She had no idea of the kind of deal Darrow had already struck with them. And she takes the deal. Darrow would become a millionaire. His rags-to-riches story, the quintessential American dream fable, no matter how inaccurate, was great marketing fodder. Once Parker Brothers had the rights to McGee's version, they write her out of the story. Even as of 2015, on Hasbro's website, the timeline of Monopoly's origin started with Charles Darrow in the early 1930s. 
Elizabeth McGee died in 1948. In her obituary, it said nothing about her contributions to Monopoly. Now, thanks to Ralph Ansbach and Mary Pullen's book, Elizabeth McGee is finally beginning to get the recognition she deserved all along in Monopoly's origin story. But still, something bugs me about this story. Okay, a lot of things bug me, but beyond the glaring creative, social, and economic issues that the authors have flashed a spotlight on, something else bothers me. On that fateful evening, when Charles Darrow first becomes exposed to a version of Elizabeth McGee's game, why weren't the anti-monopoly rules still part of it? Said differently, as the game circulated, as it was being communicated to others and remade, why did that particular set of rules drop off? This is the crux of an issue that plagues communicators of all fields, be it politicians, artists, folks in both private and public sectors. Why didn't McGee's original message, the reason she created the game in the first place, break through? I have a theory for what the problem was. Elizabeth McGee was being ironic. Specifically, she was making a statement using situational irony, whereby the result of an action is contrary to what we would expect. We're all used to playing games. We're used to switching on our inherent competitive spirit with the end goal of crowning one winner. That would be the expected result of playing a board game, be it in the early 1900s or today. But remember that quote I read for you from McGee in that political magazine? She said, quote, the object of the game is the same as the human race seems to have, the accumulation of wealth, end quote. She's being ironic. She's trying to teach people that the so-called traditional rules of the game and of life are flawed. And that lesson, that light bulb moment, was supposed to come when people tried their hand at the other version of her game. The anti-monopoly, the one that rewarded players to work together to accumulate wealth. Think again about all of the things that you probably hate about playing Monopoly. The fights you get into with family or friends when everyone begins getting hyper-competitive. The distrust you have that maybe not everyone is playing by the rules. The every-person-for-themselves mentality that keeps the game going on endlessly. The unfair property trades between players you object to. All of it. Yeah, you hate Monopoly, because that was McGee's point. Heck, you can even interpret her decision to make the game board an endless loop, practically unheard of in her day, as a metaphor. In the anti-monopoly version, it's emblematic of our planet's symbiosis, of the interdependency we have on each other. And in the monopoly version, it's symbolic of the endless rat race, the monotonous, repetitive trail poisoned by a game objective that only keeps people fighting with each other longer, forever thinking that singular wealth accumulation is the only answer. Elizabeth McGee was being ironic. And we all just missed her point and still made Monopoly one of the best-selling games ever, anyway. But 
let's press further. Why did we miss her point? Because I don't think this is about intelligence. It's not that we were too dumb to notice. It's because our brains are really bad at spotting irony. In a 2014 study in the Journal of Experimental Psychology led by psychologist Ruth Fillick, participants read and listened to a series of ironic scenes with equipment that tracked their eye movements and electrodes strapped to their heads. Some of the scenes were common ironic scenes, like a mother who finds her son playing video games instead of studying and says sarcastically, working hard. But others were less familiar, less common, such as someone entering a house that was decorated as minimalist and exclaiming, how homey. The tests revealed that participants were able to process the common ironies just as they would have any literal statement. But the more nuanced the irony, the more their minds struggled to process and understand it. That study corroborated a similar finding published in 2012 in the academic journal Neuroimage, which found that participants were much better at detecting irony on repeated exposure, almost as if they had to first file it away to their memories before being able to identify it. We have trouble processing irony in part because of how our minds work. Look, we don't give our brains enough credit for their ability to make instantaneous sense of a chaotic, disorganized world. But in order to pull that off, to make sense of all these converging stimuli we come into contact with every day, our brains take shortcuts. Psychologists call them heuristics, and our minds do it so well, most of the time they're cutting corners beneath our conscious thought. And sometimes these shortcuts our minds make results in a cognitive bias known as misattribution. Our brains are so good at forging associations between stimuli to simplify our world for us that we don't notice the times we inadvertently take those associations too far. In a recent study led by Kareem Haggad at Carnegie Mellon University, the researchers wanted to find out if the major a student ends up choosing to pursue might be influenced by the time of day that they took the subject in their freshman or sophomore year. Think about the early morning classes you took when you were in school, when you might have been tired, perhaps even hungover. Could you have inadvertently associated those negative feelings of sleepiness or a headache with the subject matter you were being taught? The research says yes. Hagag and his colleagues studied years of data from West Point, where underclassmen are all randomly scheduled introductory courses in economics, chemistry, calculus, and others. They found that students that were randomly assigned a particular subject in an early morning class were 10% less likely to major in it than a student who took that subject later in the day. And if you think that case of misattribution is living below the surface of conscious thought, try this one on for size. In a 2009 study in psychological science, psychologist Niles Jostman and his colleagues had participants fill out a number of questionnaires. Unbeknownst to the subjects, the questionnaires themselves weren't the nucleus of this study. It was the clipboards. 
Participants who took the questionnaires on heavier clipboards were more likely to judge the issue in the questionnaire as more important. In some variations of the study, subjects were asked to estimate the value of foreign currencies. And again, the subjects who filled out the questionnaires on heavier clipboards perceived the money as more valuable and more important. The researchers exploited our mental shortcut of associating weight with importance and with value. This is why, to me, our minds have so much trouble picking up irony, particularly the more unfamiliar or the more nuanced it is. Because irony is trying to break through these fortresses of associations we've forged for years. This is why we're more likely to spot irony in places we're looking for it, like poetry, because we're used to hunting for hidden meaning there. But we're not used to hunting for irony in board games, a medium where there isn't much nuance. There are accounts that the community of Quakers, the ones that changed the street names in Monopoly, they changed some of the rules because they initially thought they were too complicated. That was the flaw in the medium Elizabeth McGee chose to distribute her message through. We're ingrained to associate board games with winning and losing, with competition and conquest. We don't expect irony, so our minds aren't looking for it. And, therefore, we miss Elizabeth McGee's message entirely. Irony misses the mark often, especially when communicators are trying to disseminate a message via an unfamiliar medium or by an unfamiliar method. It happens in politics and in business. It happens in the arts, too. And it happened to one of the most popular rock songs in American history. A song you've probably sung along to in arenas or at municipal events that you might have no idea what its original intended message was. In 1981, Bruce Springsteen participated in a big benefit in Los Angeles for U.S. veterans of the Vietnam War. According to a profile on Springsteen in NPR's American Anthem series, he was really impacted by that experience. The tragedy of that war and the lasting impact it had on its veterans, it moves him to write a song about it. So he begins to write. Now, the original title for the song is simple, just one word, Vietnam. It's haunting and somber with themes of loneliness and despair. He's writing about a veteran returning home to destitution with no jobs available, with nothing his country promised would be waiting for him when he returned. His original demo includes lines like, quote, about half the towns out of work ain't nothing for you here, end quote. And, quote, I guess you didn't hear you died in Vietnam, end quote. Springsteen keeps tinkering with it. He changes a few lines to add some nuance, but it's still pretty clear what he's talking about. It's a dark, cutting commentary on America, on pointless wars, on the ways the country failed all of our veterans. But towards the end of the creative process, Springsteen makes a critical decision. One that changed the trajectory of both the song and his message. 
Bruce Springsteen decides to be ironic. He puts the song in the key of B major. That's the same key as Neil Diamond's Sweet Caroline and the Beatles' Penny Lane. He makes it sound happy. He changes the name of the song, he turns up the volume, and he sort of shouts the chorus in a strained, joyful way. In some ways, Springsteen is sharpening the knife, contrasting these bleak lyrics with a more upbeat tone. Now it symbolizes the naive, misguided optimism of these veterans and of our country. So, in 1984, he releases... But remember misattribution. Remember how quickly our brains have been trained to form associations. The amount of songs you have listened to in B major that were about simple, happy things, it's practically incalculable. And the shouting, joyful-sounding rendition featuring the words born in the USA, Springsteen was fighting against years of subconscious association, against our mental shortcuts. So the song takes off, but it's broadly interpreted as this sort of ode to patriotism. It's played in stadiums and at government functions. Ronald Reagan, whose politics are well to the right of Bruce Springsteen, he actually references Springsteen in a 1984 campaign speech saying, quote, America's future rests in a thousand dreams inside your hearts and in the message of hope in songs of a man so many young Americans admire, Bruce Springsteen, end quote. Hope. Over the years, Springsteen tries to take his song back. Some concertgoers reported that he would occasionally cut off the audience when they were singing the song along with him and say something like, hey, I can handle this myself. Then, in the mid-1990s, Bruce Springsteen plays an acoustic version of the song in some of his shows, one that's far darker and more on tone with its meaning. Here, listen to this. The message is much clearer in that version, but it wasn't a match for the runaway success that was the original. Springsteen's 1984 album, titled after that fateful song, has sold more than 30 million copies worldwide, making it one of the best-selling albums of all time. Born in the USA continues to be one of his most popular songs and still makes its way into political rallies and victory speeches to this day. Not bad for a song crying out against American politics. Just as with the story of Monopoly, the point here isn't to catch people in the act of blaring Born in the USA on the 4th of July and call them out on it. Springsteen's song was brilliant. His arrangement, the dramatic irony, it's art. But the fact that we misunderstood it isn't a knock on our intelligence. It's a reminder of how easily our minds make associations and how tough it is to break them. 
To me, trying to change how we're all wired, it's a noble cause, but this lesson might be more appropriate for the communicators themselves. Be careful with your message, and be careful how you choose to disseminate it. When you attempt to deliver unfamiliar, unexpected irony or veiled meanings to a mass audience, it probably won't resonate like you intend it to. At best, it's subject to varying interpretations. That doesn't mean we can't be poetic or aspire for nuance in our creative works, but it does mean that we should be deliberate and strategic with how we construct meaning, message, and medium. The most successful marketing campaigns, the political slogans and sound bites that stick with us, they tend to be the simplest. Messages that are almost impossible to misinterpret. Be aware that by its very nature, irony goes against the current. It flies in the face of the associations we've all forged. Expecting people to understand that they need to do the opposite of what they've always done every time they've ever played a board game, or contrasting desolate lyrics with joyful melodies, these are risks. If they work, they are brilliant. If they don't, it's a missed opportunity. But hey, you might still achieve success, just not in the way you intended. In 1995, before Bruce Springsteen played Born in the USA to yet another sellout crowd, he said of those that loved the song but didn't understand it, quote, my mother thanks you, my father thanks you, and my children thank you, because I've learned that that's where the money is, end quote. As the final line of Hasbro's instructions for Monopoly say to this day, the last player remaining wins. This is David Giardino. Thanks for listening. A small favor, if you know someone who would enjoy this podcast, please consider sharing it with them. It really can make a difference. Thanks.